to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea here once again with you. So what's so crazy is I realize we are about to have our one-year anniversary at Nonprofit Lowdown. I say we, but I mean me, since I am a one-woman media company sitting here in my living room talking to you live, but I just wanted to say that it's been an amazing experience, and I really appreciate all of the listeners who tune in, and I hope it's been helpful. If there are other things that you'd like for me to discuss, please let me know. Shoot me an email, Rhea at RhiaWong.com, R-H-E-A at R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G dot com, and I'd be happy to address any of the questions that you have. So today's podcast episode is a little bit different than others that I've done in the past. I don't have a guest today, but what I do want to do is talk about three books that I have read recently that have really changed my mind and perspective, and I hope that they will be helpful to you. So the first book that I want to talk about today is called Brave New Work. I've talked about this literally to everybody I know. I probably have single-handedly sold dozens of copies, um, and we were lucky enough to have Sam Sperlin on the show a couple of months ago. I'll link to that episode in the podcast. But what is Brave New Work? It's this really fantastic book written by this man, Aaron Dignan, about um, what he calls the organizational operating system. In my job as a consultant, I'm asked to help people change or improve or um, get better in some way. And I think often we look at the leaders or we look at the staff, but we often don't look at the underlying interstitial tissue of what we call the operating system. And so The thing that's been really helpful and informative to me is when he talks about how culture, because I know we're talking a lot about culture and how the importance of culture and we know people who join our organization ask about culture, but what is culture really? The ways that we act together, it's our behaviors, it's our assumptions, it's our beliefs, but where do those things come from? And I think Aaron rightly points out that that they're a manifestation of all of the different practices, the underlying operating system, if you will, of an organization. And so he says, and I think that this is right, is culture is read only, which is that you can't necessarily decide to change culture. What you can decide to do is to change the underlying structures and practices underneath it, which will then manifest itself in a culture. So for example, you could say that in, in any organizational culture that there's not a culture of open communication. What that generally means is that there are no specific structures that have been articulated around knowledge and information sharing and and or we have defaulted to one way in an unintentional way because a lot of things that happen within an organization happen very organically. I happen to work with a lot of organizations that are founder-led and generally these are folks who have dreamed up the organization on their own at their kitchen table. And so all of the practices and structures have really manifested themselves in a very organic way, which works fine at a certain level. But as an organization starts scaling up without intentionally designing and creating processes and structures and systems, um, things can uh, 
practices and behaviors can start to build that do not serve the organization at the next level. And so without having an intentional understanding of the underlying operating systems, we often fall into unhealthy behaviors and therefore unhealthy culture. So it sounds very abstract, but there's this very good exercise that he presents in the book and you can find online as well. And I've now done this exercise with a couple of nonprofits and the results have been really positive because I think it takes a lot of the blame and shame out of organizational change and really puts it in the hands of the people who are impacted by it and and presents very concrete solutions for problems that occur. Just as an example, some of the tensions that he calls that can occur in an operating system are things like information is on is it shared only on a need-to-know basis, or there's no alignment on strategic priorities, or people don't do what they say they're going to do, or that there's a learned helplessness, or that there are too many meetings. So there's actually a stack of cards that I bought because I'm such a fangirl. And these are the 75 most common tensions. And I was literally reading through them and being like, wow, were you actually at my organization? Because we had so many of these issues, which makes me feel both incredibly validated that it wasn't just me, but also um, baffled that it was so many other people as well. And then once you've identified some of the tensions that you'd like to work on, they have what they call practice cards. And so what you do is you experiment your way into a new way of being together. So some common practices that they might suggest is, for example, stop sharing files and switch to software that supports real-time collaboration, or make org and team financials transparent and accessible, or work in public by making workflow and work in progress visible to other teams or make compensation transparent to everyone in the, or in the organization. So the idea behind it is that you don't have these large full-scale top-down change efforts, but that you incrementally on the ground uh, work with people who want to try small experiments and essentially over time you experiment your way into a new culture. Anyway, I'm a big fan. Love it. Happy to answer any questions about it, but brave new work. Get it. Get it while it's hot. Really, really found a lot of value in it. Okay, the second book I want to talk about today is a book called Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt. And so I first found out about this book because I was listening to a different podcast. I listened to a lot of podcasts about business and entrepreneurship. Um, and Michael Hyatt is a consultant. And this book is called Free to Focus, a total productivity system to achieve more by doing less, which to me was like, because I think so much of the productivity gain that we know about is dedicated to helping people to do more in less time. But we don't actually ever really talk about doing less. And so I also read this other book recently called Make Time, and it's sort of the same idea, which is how do you actually start to do less and focus in on doing what you need to do uh, without distraction. And so I don't know about y'all, but I, the, this modern age has really got me distracted. The other day I was on the couch and I, I swear to you, I was simultaneously watching Netflix on my computer and checking my phone. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? Why is this, what is even happening? And I just, I find myself getting really distracted by 
I don't know, I'm like sitting around and I just I pick up my phone and I decide that it's a good time to check my email. There are some of you who have been listening to the pod know that I've actually deleted all the social media apps off my phone, which has been helpful. But I have found that my attention span has gotten shorter and shorter and that the influx of things coming at me just seems to grow over time. So so it's a problem, but what I like about Free to Focus is he actually pr- provides some very concrete tools to help stem the flow of distractions. And I think the really important thing that he points to, two things that I think are that have been helpful for me, is identifying what he calls things that are in your desire zone. Especially as an entrepreneur, I spend probably a disproportionate amount of time doing things I probably ought not to be doing because it's cheaper for me to do. So just uh, an example would be I was tinkering around with some graphic design stuff. I'm not a graphic designer. I know Canva has made me think that I am, but I am not. And in fact, the amount of time that I spend tinkering around with graphics, I could actually be using to do something else with my time. And so the premise of the book is about identifying your desire zone and then figuring out strategies to either delegate or delete or automate all of the other tasks that are not within that zone. And so the longer and more time you can spend in your desire zone, the more productive you can be. And the less time you spend doing things you ought not to be doing. And so, especially for somebody like me, I'm such a yes person. I want to do everything. I think I can do everything. And and I usually get it done, but at a personal cost. And so I've been thinking about that a lot more recently. Um, and it's led to a couple of innovations in my, in my business. The one is that I'm using global arbitrage. So I, I hire freelancers off of websites like Upwork and Fiverr to do work that I ought not to be doing, such as uh, editing this podcast or creating my website. You can do it quite cheaply and frankly, they're a lot better at it than I am. And then the other really great strategy that he came up with, and I spoke about this in the last podcast, is I I have a lot of people coming at me wanting to have coffee and pick my brain and so on and so forth. And I often, I have a hard time saying no because I'm such a pleaser. But once I've identified being in my desire zone, it's been much easier for me to turn down these offers in a kind and gentle way. And so I spoke about this last week, but I use the yes, no, yes strategy that he talks about, which is that you, yes, acknowledge the email. I mean, it's nice when people reach out. So, hey, it's so great that you are starting a podcast slash starting a nonprofit slash wanting information about fundraising. And then the no, unfortunately, at this time, I will not be able to meet with you because of my current priorities. Sometimes I would be inclined to um, pass the buck a little bit and kick the can down the road and say like, maybe let's touch base next month when really I, I meant no. I think as Brene Brown says, clear is kind. And so the no is unfortunately, I, I'm not able to meet with you at this time because of my current other commitments. But then the last yes is something positive and generous. So uh, yes, I, even though I won't be able to meet with you, I have attached some resources that might be of value to you, or here's some articles that might be of value to you. Uh, best of luck to you. And um, I've enacted it, and it's been quite successful, and it's also freed my time up. So that is a really 
great innovation. I recommend Free to Focus because I think, I mean, honestly, can't we all use a little bit more focus in our days, people? Also, that inbox coming in, I just can't. Really, an email inbox is everybody else's to-dos for you. And I was like, yes, because I would go through my day, I would plow through my inbox, and yet I wouldn't actually have anything that I'd done that day. And the other interesting thing as a companion to Free to Focus is I have I have something called the Productivity Planner, and essentially it is a is a day planner, but it only has three things listed. And so the idea is that in any given day, you complete three tasks. That's it. I think it focuses your energy and your effort to it. But at the end of the day, even if you haven't felt like you've gotten anything done, you will have at least accomplished three tasks. The last piece I wanted to discuss is actually not a book, though it has since become a book. It is uh, the Harvard Business Review article by Marcus Buckingham. So Full disclosure, I've been a big Marcus Buckingham geek for a while. He's the guy who came up with Strengths Finders, for those of you who are Strengths Finder fans. His article is called The Feedback Fallacy. And what's interesting about the feedback fallacy is of late, I think there's been a lot of discussion in the literature about the value of feedback. I mean, I even I even reviewed Radical Candor, which is one of the by Kim Scott. It's one of the books sort of making it the rounds uh, about the value of radical candor. And, and I believe that feedback is important and necessary, but the problem with it is that we have this idea of ourselves as people who give feedback being the incontrovertible source of truth. Often when there's a positional power differential, it's usually the boss or manager giving feedback to their directs. Now, the problem with that is that humans are actually terrible at objective truth. We as managers and leaders don't have some kind of access to the single source of truth, and yet we we deliver feedback as if we, we know the truth and that we're giving you information about yourself that you may not know. So there are a lot of a lot of problems with these assumptions and so the only thing that we are really actually experts of is our own emotional reaction to things that occur there are circumstances in the world we as humans have thoughts our thoughts create our feelings about it our feelings create our actions about it and so what this article talks about is the ways in which we can actually deliver feedback in a way to help people excel. Uh, the first thing is that it <laughs> encourages us to look for wins. I think managers, especially high achieving people, tend to we we tend to look at situations where you know ten things can go right, but maybe two things will go wrong, and we'll fixate on those two things that have gone wrong. But he talks about Tom Landry. I don't know anything about about football but apparently there is this coach Tom Landry who took over uh, the Dallas Cowboys and apparently they weren't doing very well when he took took over the team and so instead of reviewing tape of all of the mistakes like the fumbles and the drop balls and so forth Landry created a footage reel of the players at their best and so he would do these high these high value interrupts when people were doing really excellent work because I think as a person, you 
you can be told all of the things that you are doing wrong, but you won't necessarily be told all of the things that you are doing right. And it's those moments that you're doing things right when you're really excelling and you're really living in your strengths. And so if we can actually rewire our brains a little bit, provide feedback to people when they are at their best, and that when we can point out moments of excellence, I think we'll go a lot further. And the second big value piece that I took away from this article is that instead of the ways in which we're trained to give feedback, so for example, I was trained to give feedback by, by following a a pretty common form, which is, hey, can I give you some feedback? When you did X, the result was Y. In the future, I need you to do Z. There's nothing wrong with that statement. The issue, though, is it presupposes that I have some kind of monopoly on understanding what ought to be done. And so instead of saying, can I give you some feedback, try saying instead, here's my reaction, or would you like my reaction? Instead of saying, good job, he says, there are three things that really work for me. What was going through your mind when you did them? And so the feedback that you're giving becomes much more subjective about your personal emotional reaction to what they are doing and and takes out this notion that somehow you are this all-knowing, all-seeing being that has a monopoly on truth. And it becomes much more of a bi-directional conversation about what's working for me you know, as your leader. Um, and also how can I help you to excel and increase these moments of excellence. So it's a really great article. It's called The Feedback Fallacy, and it's now become a book called The Nine Lies About Work. I'm right in the middle of that book, so I'm not quite ready to review it yet, but it is, it's very promising. And for those of you who are looking for different ways of being a leader and different ways of engaging with your team, I really recommend it. Those are my top three book club I guess they're not all books, book slash article recommendations. And I want to say once again, I really appreciate all of you who have listened over the year. I will keep on keeping on. Please email me if there are any topics that you'd like to see. And I really thank you for listening. Have a great week. Bye-bye.